We're looking at the first passage in 2 Corinthians this morning. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church that was in Corinth and also in the surrounding area of Achaia. It's probably one of Paul's most intimate and open letters. It's also a letter that's written shortly after Paul has gone through some intense persecution and some intense personal suffering. With that in mind, let's turn to our text now. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that as we approach it, that you will meet us there, that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it for your glory and for our good. Amen. I want to start this morning by asking, how do you respond to suffering? To physical suffering, to be sure, but also to mental and emotional suffering, to heart-level or gut-level suffering, to mental and emotional pain that can lead to despair. How do you respond when that kind of suffering comes knocking on your door? As a whole, I think we're part of a culture here in America that almost frantically tries to flee from suffering. In fact, we often work hard to avoid even mild discomfort. You can see an example of this being pointed out in the trend that's picked up of identifying what people call first world problems. People make memes on the internet or jokes in person or on the internet about this, pointing out our tendency to complain about even mild discomfort in an otherwise comfortable and blessed life. Some people post memes of these kinds with a picture of someone crying and the complaint written over it as a joke. You can find complaints like this. One pillow is too low, but two pillows are too high. I want to lie on my side while texting, but my smartphone keeps rotating the screen. I have nothing to drink at home except a virtually unlimited supply of clean water. 
You get the idea. They poke fun about how many of us, and I know that I am guilty of this, complain about and work to avoid even mild discomforts or frustrations in life. So there are these sort of amusing small examples of it. But there are also more serious expressions of this tendency as well. One of them is the story of Brittany Menard. Brittany was 29 and had been married for just a year when she was diagnosed with an aggressive form of brain cancer. She was soon given a prognosis of only six months to live. When it was clear that no cure was available to her, Brittany decided to move with her family to Oregon, where it was legal for her to request a lethal dose of medication from a doctor to end her own life. Brittany's story soon got media attention. In an open letter that she wrote on CNN.com, she discussed both the physical suffering she would face if she let the cancer run its course and the mental and emotional suffering it would cause her, her husband, and her mother. In one video, Brittany explains it this way. She says, I refuse to lose my dignity. I refuse to subject myself and my family to purposeless, prolonged pain and suffering at the hands of an incurable disease. She goes on to say, I want to live fully until I die. And then she explains how much peace she's given by having control over her death. Throughout the video, she emphasizes her desire to die, as she puts it, with dignity. In another video, Brittany focuses on the mental and emotional pain and suffering that her disease has caused her so far. She also expresses her concern about the suffering her illness and death will cause her mother and her husband. On November 1st, 2014, Brittany died with her family around her after she had taken a lethal dose of medication. It's complicated to know how exactly to respond to Brittany's story. As Christians, we hold that it is not our right as individuals to end a human life, including our own. And so it is understandable and it is right that many Christians were distressed by Brittany's choice and concerned about how the publicity of it could influence others to make similar decisions. At the same time, among the many responses that we have, I think primary among them in our responses to Brittany should be a compassionate pity. Brittany's situation was a difficult one. I know it's harder than anything that I have had to face. And her sad and terrible choice to end her life was not as autonomous as she might have hoped. She was not just an advocate for doctor-assisted suicide, but she had been discipled by a culture in a particular way of viewing life, death, and suffering that led her to that unfortunate decision. All the same, I bring up Brittany Menard not primarily to talk about her death, but to talk about one of the underlying assumptions that led her to take that lethal dose on November 1st. Brittany explained that she refused to subject herself and her family to what she called purposeless, prolonged pain and suffering. As much as she talked about the physical pain of the disease, more often her focus was on the mental and emotional pain that it would cause. She talked about losing autonomy, as if to live without autonomy was less than really living. She talked about losing her dignity, implying that to live with suffering she could not control was to live without dignity. She talked about wanting to live fully up until her death, implying that to live with suffering was to be less than fully alive. She spoke of her desire to take control of her situation. 
I bring Brittany Menard up because I think we are all a bit like Brittany Menard. Now, of course, I do not mean that we all face the same dire situation that she did. I also don't mean that in that situation we would all make the same choice that she made. What I mean is that in our functional day-to-day lives, we often have the same assumptions about suffering as she did, especially mental and emotional suffering. We often see suffering as purposeless. We often see emotional pain as an insult to our dignity. We see heart-level suffering as something that prevents us from living fully. And if it leads us to need to rely on others, we often see suffering as a threat to our autonomy. And that can terrify us. And so we might never request a lethal dose of medication if we were in Brittany's situation. In our own less dire situations, we too flee from suffering and try to seize control of our situation. What does it look like when we do that? When we flee from mental and emotional pain, it can take a range of forms. Sometimes we try to anesthetize ourselves from the pain. It may be through ways that we zone out, that we disconnect from the world. We might do that through large doses of television or video games or the Internet. It could be by pursuing distractions, whether immersing ourselves in work or in a hobby. Or it could be by some sort of substance abuse or some sort of sin. Excessive alcohol, overeating, drugs, gossip, pornography. How are you tempted to anesthetize yourself when confronted with heart-level suffering, with mental and emotional pain? There are ways that we anesthetize ourselves, but that is not the only way that we might flee from suffering or try to seize control of our situation. Other times, rather than looking for an anesthetic, we turn to a form of emotional stoicism. We convince ourselves that the mature thing to do is to feel nothing, and that we can do it by our own willpower. We fight to banish the pain from our mind. If the anesthetic route tries to drown out the pain, the stoic route denies that it's even there. We can even be tempted to elevate this kind of stoicism to a sort of virtue. But when we pursue either of these options, the numbing or the denial, we're a lot like Brittany Menard, grasping for control, banishing the suffering from our minds because we've decided that it is purposeless. Or if it has a purpose, we are sure that it's certainly not worth the price. What's interesting is that Paul is dealing with similar assumptions with the Corinthians. And when confronted with those assumptions, Paul begins his, his letter here by acknowledging and owning the pain that he has just endured, the gut-level suffering that he's just been through. In verses 4 through 6, he talks about enduring afflictions and sufferings. Then he explains it in more detail in verses 8 and 9, writing, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. We don't know for sure what external circumstances, what they were that led Paul to this situation, what he's referring to here. Commentators debate what brought Paul to this state. But what is interesting is that he focuses not on the external details that led him there, but on his internal experience and on what it meant. And so Paul acknowledges the suffering he faced 
And in a sense, he embraces it. He admits that it was more than he could bear. He explains openly that he despaired of life itself. He describes how deep inside he felt as if he had been sentenced to death. One commentator summarizes it this way. He says the load had become too heavy. All his natural human resources of energy and strength were worn down to nothing. It's bad enough to hear a magistrate declare that you are sentenced to death. It's far worse when a voice deep inside yourself tells you that you might as well give up and die. That is the point that Paul had reached, the point where the night had become totally dark and all hope of dawn had disappeared. Paul accepts that and admits it. That is what he experienced. Where we might avoid or flee from mental and emotional suffering and despair, where we might see it as pointless, Paul owns it. Why? Why does he do that? Why does he own it? Paul owns his suffering because he sees that it has a purpose. Paul sees that God is using his suffering to equip him to love other people better. Paul sees that his suffering is for the benefit of those that he is ministering to. Now, how can that be? Well, Paul states in verse 4 that one of his jobs as an apostle is to comfort God's people with the comfort that he has received from God. Therefore, Paul sees that the comfort he's received and the affliction and suffering that made that comfort necessary are both for the sake of the people that Paul is called to love well. In this case, the Corinthians. That's essentially what verse 6 is all about. Listen to it again. Paul writes, if we and by we he means himself, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, that is, for the Corinthians. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. This verse sounds kind of cryptic, but it's actually fairly straightforward when you break it down. Paul acknowledges earlier in verse 4 that it is his job to comfort God's people with the comfort that he has received from God. He needs to do this when they face the same sufferings that he has. And in order to do this, he must receive that comfort from God. And in order to receive that comfort, he must endure affliction that makes that comfort necessary. And so both Paul's suffering and the comfort he receives are there to enable him to bring comfort and salvation to God's people. The principle that emerges from this is that when God's people suffer, whether physically mentally, or emotionally. It is to equip them to love others better. And in this process, suffering is overcome by comfort. And comfort then spreads to other people as they suffer. Paul's central paradigm for this is Christ. It comes up in verse 5. He writes, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. What Paul shows us is that Christ's death and resurrection must be the lens through which we view all of our suffering. Commentator Paul Barnett puts it this way. He says, Christ is central to Paul in this experience. He is the source from whom suffering overflowed to him and the channel through whom comfort from God overflows to him. In Christ, death always leads to resurrection and resurrection always spreads. And so it is with our suffering. Our suffering leads to God's love and comfort 
which, once received, equips us to love and comfort others better. In this pattern of suffering and comfort, God works in his pattern of death and resurrection, a pattern that is fundamental to how God works in the world. As Barnett puts it, raising the dead is no abstract attribute, but it is what God typically does. And that is how Paul describes God in verse 9. And so in the midst of suffering, God provides comfort. And Paul is hyper-focused on that theme in this passage. In the space of five verses, he uses the word comfort ten times. And the kind of comfort that he's referring to is a loving, relational comfort, received both directly from God and, as we learn later on in chapter 7 of this letter, from God through his people, in Paul's case through Titus and through the Corinthians themselves, who bring comfort to Paul. But comfort only happens when we allow the mental and emotional aspects of suffering to hit us, rather than trying to run from them or control them. That is the catch. Shortly after the news of Brittany Menard had gone viral on the Internet and was starting to get national press coverage, another story also began to get media attention. It was the story of Kara Tippetts. Kara wrote an open letter to Brittany encouraging her to rethink her decision to end her own life. As conservative media columnists directed others to Kara's letter, Kara's story also began to receive attention. Kara was a young mother of four and the wife of a PCA pastor who at the age of 39 was diagnosed with terminal cancer herself. Kara's days were numbered like Brittany's. Kara's prognosis left little reason for hope like Brittany's. But Kara had chosen to accept the suffering that lay ahead, and she urged Brittany to do the same. Kara had no illusions about the physical suffering that lay ahead for her, or the mental and emotional suffering that lay ahead for her and for her family. The toll had already been great. Yet Kara, as a Christian, held to the belief that there was a purpose for her and her family in this suffering, even if she was not able to see what it was. She believed that that was true, not only for her suffering, but for her family's suffering as well. Kara wrote this to Brittany. She said, in choosing your own death, you are robbing those that love you with such tenderness of the opportunity of meeting you in your last moments and extending you love in your last breaths. She goes on to say, as I sat on the bed of my young daughter praying for you, I wondered over the impossibility of understanding that one day the story of my young daughter will be made beautiful in her living because she witnessed me dying. Kara could not see the purpose of her suffering or of her family's suffering, but she trusted that that purpose was there. She trusted in the God who raises the dead, who raises the dead not just with a physical resurrection on the last day, but with comfort and love in the midst of our pain here and now in this life. The question is, are we prepared to do the same? Are we prepared to own suffering, to experience it, and to let it hit us, trusting that God has a purpose for it, even if we can't see it? To be clear, I'm not talking about seeking pain or suffering We do not need to seek it, nor should we. It will find each one of us soon enough. 
I'm also not talking about rejecting reasonable pain relief for physical suffering when it's available. No. What I'm talking about is how we respond when suffering of some kind is inevitable. What will we do when it shows up at our door? Will we anesthetize ourselves? Will we try to be stoics? Or will we let it hit us with a conviction that God brings resurrection out of death, that he brings comfort out of pain? This text contains the startling truth that God will, in fact, allow us to face more affliction than we can endure. It's right there in verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You will often hear Christians say that God will never give us more than we can handle. While their hearts may be in the right place when they say it, it is simply not true. It is true that in 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul says that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability, to be tempted so severely that there is no way for us to resist it. That is an important truth. But it's about God restraining the temptation that we face, not the affliction that we endure. When it comes to affliction, Paul is clear. He was burdened beyond his own strength. Why would God allow that to happen? Here Paul is clear again. To force us to rely not on ourselves, but on God. To bring us to the end of ourselves and to make us rely on him. Paul says that he experienced more than he could bear. And it forced him to rely on God in new ways. And that changed him. Commentators note that Paul seems to be a changed man because of this suffering. He emerges with a new, clearer vision of God. To trust God better, the Apostle Paul needed to suffer and then receive God's comfort. The Apostle Paul needed that. Do we really think that we are above needing the same? More than that, Paul is better equipped to love the people in his life because of this suffering and comfort that he's endured. He says it in verse 4, explaining that God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort with which we have ourselves been comforted by God. While all suffering is unique, Paul tells us that this kind of equipping transfers. It is an equipping that enables us to comfort those in any affliction. Any affliction. One theologian speaking about Paul and the implication of this text for him puts it this way. He says, members of the church may be afflicted in ways that the apostles have never experienced, but the apostles are still able to provide comfort through their own experience of comfort and affliction. Here is an apostle who has been flogged and imprisoned. Here is a young woman bereaved of a newborn baby. Does the apostle's experience give him authority to speak comfort to her? Paul says, yes, any affliction. And so our suffering well through our afflictions equips us to love others well as they experience their own afflictions. This leads us to another startling reality. This means that suffering you experience at one stage in your life may be for the benefit of others at a later stage in your life. It means that the suffering you've experienced as a young single person may have been for the purpose of better equipping you 
to love and comfort your future children or future spouse in an affliction that they will face. It means that the suffering you experience today may be to equip you to better care for someone you have not even met yet or someone whom you know, but for an affliction well in the future, far beyond the horizon of what we can see or imagine. It could be a family member or a fellow church member, a friend or a coworker. We do not know. But to experience these benefits, to experience this equipping, we need to suffer well. And that means not anesthetizing ourselves through distractions or running and hiding from the pain through stoicism, but letting it hit us and crying out to God for comfort and then being willing to receive that comfort from God both directly and through his people. The Apostle Paul assures us that when we suffer well, when we face it and endure it and seek God in the midst of it, then we are being equipped to love and serve Christ and his people better. But to suffer well requires faith in the God who raises the dead. It requires that we view all suffering as Paul did, through the lens of Christ's death and resurrection. And that is not an easy thing to do. But it is our calling. And it is how we are to follow in the footsteps of Christ, our elder brother. We can pursue it without fear of his judgment, because we know that he will forgive us when we fail. We can pursue it with a sense of security, because we know that he will lift us up when we fall. We can pursue it with true hope, because we know that he will help us to follow him in suffering well if we ask him. We can pursue it in faith, because we know that he is the God of all comfort the God who brings new life out of death. Amen.